I'm Wally Fister, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Hey, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm uh, I'm I'm making it through somehow. It's uh, we have a new president elect. It's pretty sweet. We didn't talk about it last week, but uh, it's going to change a few things. And actually, I'm going to opine that it's going to affect the film industry positively because we will be taking a evidence and science based approach to uh, getting rid of the COVID scourge that we're all kind of living with. It may affect the television market too. They say that people close to Trump say that he's going to start a OANN style network, a uh, another, you know, a competitor to, to Fox and stuff when he leaves office and that's going to be his new thing. Uh, I, I've already heard people say, I don't know if that's true because he's so polarizing. They say that a lot of advertisers are going to have a hard time uh, swallowing I mean, that. sure, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't watch it. I, I, I don't know anyone who will watch it. it, it it's not going to really affect my day-to-day any more than Glenn Beck's network. I mean, who cares? His fans deserve and should have whatever media empire he feels like building for them good for all of them they deserve each other i've heard actually and this is supposedly from the trump side that they are looking at the business model of the rt which is the uh the russian television a state-run propaganda machine that exists in other countries deeply Uh, surprised face you know uh, (laughs) listeners can't can't see that my face is very surprised that uh, trump would be trying to copy something that worked in russia weird yeah weird i mean you know I choose not to go down that political rabbit hole any further, though, however, because uh, we have one of the guests that like when we started doing this podcast, we were like, what if we can get someone like Wally Fister on here one day? And here we are. Here we are. And today's guest, uh, part one, part one of a two-part episode. You guys might remember the Bradford Young two-parter we did before. There was so much great stuff. We split it into two. Same thing now with Wally Fister. It's uh, it's it's a really, really incredibly great interview. And uh, he was really generous, gave us a lot of time. And, it, you know, we just we couldn't cut it down to one episode. It's 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 two episodes. And if you're not familiar with Wally Pfister, he's shot a couple movies you might have heard of, like uh, everything Christopher Nolan did, starting with Memento and ending with The Dark Knight Rises, also shot Moneyball. Uh, He's just a a phenomenal DP, but also, uh, and one of my favorite things to talk to people about, he is a Roger Corman guy. So man, oh man, do I love hearing Roger Corman stories, and Wally gives us quite a few. You are giving it all away right now, so let's jump into close focus, then we'll we'll come back to the interview. So uh, All right, so, let's do it. So Ben, there was a lot of talk, and we didn't really talk about it on the show, but Toronto, uh, which is a film festival that happens every year in the fall, uh, had, a, had a brisk... They prefer to pronounce it Toronto. The T is silent. Oh, really? The second it's, T is silent. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Toronto. That's how that's how the locals Toronto, say. Toronto, not Toronto. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've been corrected about uh, Tempe, Arizona, as well too. There's a. I've been corrected about Louisville, Kentucky. It is pronounced Louisville, apparently, Louisville, and yeah, I yeah. refuse to. I refuse <laughs> to do that, but I will make Toronto, Toronto. that one concession. All right. 
good good okay so hey uh toronto that was a good year for uh sellers sellers uh buying was brisk a lot of uh content i, I hate to use the word content but you know uh it's mostly features there but there, yeah, there's d- didn't you like going to content school i miss yeah, those con- days of con- content school ju- just you wait just you wait they're gonna they're gonna rename <laughs> the university of central florida's program is gonna be called not gonna be film program <laughs> the content program content program content builders <laughs> Here, here's some nougat. You can spread it up on the screen and then people can watch it. Content makers. It's going to be, mm, yeah, it's going to be fun. I love making some content. Uh, anyway, so we have a particular sales market for the, particularly for the, for the film industry, for the theatrical uh, and uh, feature length industry here every year in Los Angeles. Uh, t- it technically takes place in Santa Monica. Very famous, the American film market, also known as AFM. And it just wrapped up for 2020. And there was quite a bit of um, speculation of how it was going to do because the market is of course so interesting of course here under the time of COVID. It's also like everyone's bidding on movies that were for sure finished in people's living rooms. Yeah there was uh, brisk sales again so it seems like it really did pretty well and the sort of the takeaway it sounds like the takeaway from AFM this year was that we're not moving away from that star system anytime soon. Stars name power is uh, still king. That's always been the thing with AFM was you know I don't know if you can still do this but you'd go to afm with a movie poster a synopsis and a commitment from two b-list actors who had enough of a name to you know sell x in spain and y in germany and and z in japan and you could kind of frankenstein together your budget uh for a while uh yeah i, I think a, a producer we both know was taking movies to afm and they were essentially doing these international co-productions where they would get an american b-lister a european b-lister a new zealand b-lister and like a japanese b-lister and they'd put them all in the same movie and then they'd they're like here it is we've got we've got like the the ideal cast to sell this thing all over so um, yeah, it's a it's it's interesting. Uh, this year, a list. You know, it was a list cast. Either it had a budget and was put together. Paramount was selling. Saban was selling. A bunch of people were selling, and you know they had names like Lawrence Fishburne in it. And those are the projects that that sold. Also, if you had a really really small budget, sort of like indie project, really really small budget, but also good cast, that also seemed to sell. People who were sort of in the middle or didn't really have names. Didn't do quite as well. So, uh, you know, Mm. the star system not going away anytime soon. Turns out that uh, especially in other markets, things that are, you know, ready to go. Like, you know, that's the interesting thing about AFM, too. There's a lot of pre-sales going on there. People say like, oh, I'm making this and I've got this cast and I want to pre-sell these territories on a pre-sell. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that didn't happen so much. It was a lot of stuff that was ready to go. Stuff that. Well, I think about. that, I mean, here's the thing, too, is that we're in a weird year. Like, I feel like this year, this year's AFM is buying and selling movies that were finished shooting by February. Or March, right? So if you were shooting until March, you've been in post for a while, but you know, like not an insane amount. And if you're making an independent film, you know, this is when you'd be doing the festival route, blah, blah, blah. And so if you're going to the market now, you would assume that this year would have something of a market. Next year is going to be interesting because nobody was making anything until maybe a month or so ago. And even then, it's like people are very cautiously dipping their toes into stuff. And also, there's a lot of stuff that was like two thirds finished, half finished, whatever, in February that they have to like cobble together money to finish or, you know, fi- find whatever funds there are. So, like next year's AFM, I'll, it, it will be, I don't, I'm not prognosticating shit because I don't really know, but I'm interested to see what it looks like because. 
you could theoretically get a production going right now. It's not entirely the smartest thing, depending on what kind of production you're doing. You know, if you're doing something that's like all outside, you're probably a little safe, not a lot of extras, you know, and there's a lot of crew protocols, but it's slowing down the, the process. And not only that, it doesn't surprise me that this year's AFM would have been a healthy AFM because everyone needs content, that word that you just said. Yes, exactly. Everybody's out of movies. They're out of movies and TV shows. They need stuff to put on these services to keep their customers engaged. And if we all stop making stuff, then they don't have it to continue to bait us to stay on Amazon Prime and Netflix and whatnot. Oh, one area that was, was a little bit bleaker, as you might imagine, were the people who buy, were buying for theatrical. Theatrical is in such turmoil that it was really the streamers who were making the purchases, the streamers who were uh, putting out money. Yeah. But the people who are traditional theatrical buyers, it was uh, it was tough. It was a tough, tough. Yeah. A- I mean, I'm bullish that theatrical is going to roar back. But like this week's uh, number one theatrical release, I believe, was Freaky, the Vince Vaughn kind of horror take on Freaky Friday, mm-hmm. a movie I very much want to see, by the way, but not enough to risk dying. So <laughs> and also there are no movie theaters open in L.A., so it's not like I could have gone had I wanted to. But their haul as the number one movie in theaters this week was like three point six million. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously movie theaters can't survive with, uh, with, with that kind of a thing. And yeah. I, 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 again, not to make this all about COVID, but this week it was announced that there is a vaccine that is forthcoming that we're supposed to have hopefully by the end of the year. But that means that it's going to start being distributed at the end of the year and maybe April-ish folks like you and me might be able to get a vaccine. So we're still looking at a tough uh, six more months of extraordinarily decreased uh, work. And I mean, like there are other things that we have to kind of fight COVID-19. There's rapid testing, which is, I think, about to become a lot more common. And I feel like that's one thing that can get us all back to work because they are like uh, pregnancy test type, very fast, <laughs> like 15 minute turnaround tests. Yeah, pee on the and stick. And they're cheap and everyone can take them every day. So, you know, you could... Uh, go to your film job and just be given a test on the way in and everybody would know who was sick. And, you know, they're not 100 percent effective, but they're more effective than I was tested last week. They're more effective than the current onset protocol, which involves three tests per week and also way cheaper because each of those tests that they're taking, I think, costs about two hundred dollars. These tests, I think, cost about two or three dollars. Uh, there's a few different international airports now that are doing international flights with testing prior to boarding. So what happens is you take a test, you get on the plane, and by the time you land, you get your results. And I, I don't know if this is necessarily the best uh, system, but at least when you land there, if you tested positive, you know, and then you are being sequestered depending mm-hmm. on where you are and you have to go into to two weeks of... Uh, but But I feel like it's stuff like that plus just everyone wearing masks and face shields and stuff like that that's going to get us back to work before April, well, which is when the vaccine might be a, uh, available to people like you and me. I was going to get actually, though, finish this up, though, because uh, while this has gone into effect in the U.S. and a couple other places, uh, Japan, not to be outdone, is now doing a free test for uh, people leaving Narita, is my understanding. Uh, as long hmm. as you can show up three hours before your flight, uh, they only need two hours to give you your result. So they are. I mean, honestly, I'd rather know that I was on a plane with someone who had COVID before I get on the plane, but okay. But but that's that's what they're doing. They're saying like, hey, you can come here oh, before, I see before your saying. flight. As long as you're there three hours before, you can get the test and the result before getting on the plane. And so uh, that that's interesting. They're, they're, they've they've set it up. So um, it's not, I don't know how widespread it is, but it was an interesting story yesterday. 
yesterday. Anyway, all I can say is mm-mm-mm, I cannot wait till we don't have to worry about this crap anymore. <laughs> that'll, that'll be great. Remember what life was like? Uh, I sure do. I remember mm-hmm. like, yeah, you see people going to a restaurant and you'd be like, oh, yeah, we used to like I have not sat down and eaten in a restaurant since March. I, I tell you, Instagram and Facebook stories are, are terrible because they let you know which of your friends might not be your, your personal friends are living life exactly like they were before the pandemic. Friends going yeah, to Vegas, that's, that's, friends, you know, that, going to nightclubs. And, and that's, yeah, it's, it's those exact people that are forcing us to be in the situation that we're in now, which is to say 150,000 new cases a day nationwide here in America. And scary. It's, it's spiking worldwide. Yeah. I mean, uh, anyway, I know that we were here to talk about AFM hey. and uh, we, we sidelined a little <laughs> sidelined bit. It's my fault. Well, you know what? We're going to, we're going to veer back and we should, we should probably take a hard left right now because uh, we got, we got a great interview with Wally Fister and it's not exactly short. So let's get to the interview and uh, all the goodness. All right. So here is the amazing, very talented Wally Fister. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Okay, so we are here via Zoom uh, with Wally Fister, one of our uh, bucket list DPs, somebody we've been dying to talk to since we've been doing this podcast for, what, seven years? Is one of the ones that we've, uh, we've, we've talked about and been like, oh boy, maybe one day we can uh, have him on here. So we have him here. Thank you so much for coming on, Wally. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice to be here with you guys. So I'm sure a lot of people know your work from, obviously, the Christopher Nolan collaborations that you did and also movies like Moneyball and The Italian Job. But you started, obviously, with uh, Roger Corman, which I love talking about Roger Corman. Uh, so many just brilliant DPs came out of those early days at Roger Corman. C- can you just, like, take me back to the to, to the fairy tale world of Roger Corman filmmaking in the in the, I guess it was probably the 1980s, 90s, that area? Yeah, I guess uh, yeah. The fairy tale is an interesting way to put it. <laughs> it was, <laughs> they're pretty wild times. But for me, you know, to go through my sort of experience on that, I I had just um, I was finishing my last year of uh, in the cinematography program at AFI, and I had met Janusz Kaminski through um, a mutual friend and uh, who I was going to school with, and Janusz had been to AFI the year before, and Janusz brought me on. Uh, he was working as a as a gaffer and second unit DP on these small Corman films that uh, Faden Papa Michael was shooting, and so I kind of fell into it that way. Janish brought me in, and I met Faden, and Faden and I became fast friends, and I ended up shooting second unit for him. But so I'll, I'll paint a, a, a picture of this, uh, you know, factory, which is what we <laughs> sort of considered it, which was, you know, it was on, it was in the heart of Venice. Now that real estate is worth a fortune. Now it was on 600 South Main Street in Venice, California. And uh, it was an old lumber yard. And Roger, of course, was titled King of the Bee Movies. And this was the late 80s. So this was like, I was around there in like 89. So the way the way that place worked was they were just cranking movies out and, you know, roughly 12 movies a year. So there was always a movie in pre-production, a movie in production, and a movie in post-production constantly. So everybody was around all the time. Roger was actually in an office across town in Brentwood uh, that was far more pleasant than the uh, the lumber yard was. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I, I actually remember one of the first movies that I was asked to shoot second unit on. Um, you know, I, I jumped in as an electrician with Janish, got to know everybody, you know, made my connections, uh, and then was uh, was offered a, a movie to shoot second unit on, which they, they had another little trick where they called the films by, they would change the title of film after you shot it. 
because obviously the title that you want to use to attract uh, actors and to get people to come and work on the movie is different mm-hmm. than the movie than the title that you want to put on the VHS tape to try to sell the movie. <laughs> in other words, the the latter is far more exploitive. Um, so I I came to work on a movie called Nightlight and shot second unit on that. And uh, it was released uh, as Slumber Party Massacre Part 3. <laughs> I, I do believe I have seen that film. I'm, oh, I, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. That, well, that's that horror movies are my jam. So, but I, I, Well, the, this one, I, well, the, in the first movie I ever shot as a DP, it was about this uh, unborn fetus that goes after its parents and, and you know, basically uh, uh, kills his parents for aborting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dark. It's so grim. Um, we had this this animatronic fetus for the movie. So it was. But so these films are like the you know this was my baptism and the first you know the the movie I was, I was speaking of Nightlight Stroke uh, you know Slumber Party Massacre Part Three. I remember one of the first things I was sort of asked to do. They're like. Okay, well, this this girl's sitting in the driver's seat of the car, and you know she gets a drill through her stomach. The the, the you know the bad guy is is in the back, the seat behind her. I'm so there, <laughs> <laughs> and, and stick to drill. So you know they have we had these two effects guys, the Jones brothers, who'd come out from North Carolina, where obviously things were jumping after uh, Evil Dead, and you know the kind of beginning of the North Carolina film scene, and they did all the effects on every Roger Corman movie it seemed and so they had rigged like this plastic drill bit to the front side of her belly covered up by the clothes and I braced myself I'm like all right I'm gonna get a cool angle on this and and so I braced myself in the in the foot well of the passenger seat so I could shoot an up angle of her and the idea was they turn on this electric motor and the the drill bit turns and then they just crank this blood through that thing and splatter this blood uh through so so sure enough you know we're rolling i'm i we're shooting this on a here we go getting technical it was an airy 2c which we shot everything on and they flip the switch and this drill bit starts to turn a little bit and then it starts to wobble and then they hit the blood and the blood just shoots the drill bit off of her uh, her belly blood splatters all over the entire uh, entire car interior all the windshield all over the lens all over the camera and uh and i remember i was wearing these like converse all-star sneakers and i kept them for oh, years they were just completely splattered and blood red and they were kind of cool i was like oh this is kind of you know this is the <laughs> roger corman edition you know uh, uh chucks you know uh, so I kept those for many, many years in a closet <laughs> afterwards. That's but awesome. I just found myself walking out of there, like, completely soaked in blood in my clothes. And and the DP of the film, like, kind of saw me over there. I was the second unit DP. And he kind of saw me. And I'm like, man, I just fucking destroyed my clothes. And, I, and he's like, <laughs> welcome to Roger Corman. <laughs> welcome to uh, New, Concord New Horizons was the name of the company. But, That's um, amazing. Yeah, so the story has it, and you'll hear Ron Howard tell this story, and you'll hear every director that, that went through the, the mill saying, you know, Roger's line was, you know, if you do a good job on this film, you'll never have to work for me again. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, uh, we all had that on our minds, you know. Um, and I, I think I, but I think I, I did two two movies there, you know, as DP, and both with Rodman Flender directing, and then, uh, and then managed to, to graduate from there. 
What was it about Corman? Because I feel like we've had uh, there there have been plenty of like very awesome low budget outfits that have cranked out movie after movie after movie over the years. I'm thinking of things like Full Moon. There's tons of them right now. There's The Asylum. But I feel like and maybe it's just because it was so long ago that everyone kind of grew up and, and, and became a big deal. But I feel like so many outrageously talented people, directors and DPs and actors uh, came out of do, working with Roger Corman. What was it about the environment there that was uh, nurturing the talent? Because everybody kind of tells these stories where it really does sound like you're just thrown into the trenches and have to just work your ass off. And uh, were you encouraged to do great work? What was it about that? Environment? Oh, you were encouraged to do fast work. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. there was there was no it's that you had to bring the aesthetic with you. You had to go in there <clears throat> knowing what you wanted to get out of it, knowing that you were just going to, you know, you look, they were taking from you. They were, <laughs> they were exploiting us uh, in that oh. we were cheap filmmakers coming out of film school. Everybody, you know, it's all, it was all in, in LA, you know, some of these other companies like Troma was, a, it was in New York, you know, and full moon was here, but full moon, I think was later on. It was kind of their own Whereas version. PM entertainment was another one. Exactly. Right. PM. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember like having meetings with those companies and, not getting the job. <laughs> it was like, oh man. Uh, but yeah, these guys were around. But here we, we all were here in LA and all these film schools were, you know, dumping us out onto the streets and, um, <laughs> And we had to figure it out because I got to say, man, I went to AFI and you go to AFI and it's very prestigious. And if you're coming from the East Coast, it's like this is the American Film Institute and you're very lucky that you've gotten in and you are a cinematographer. And it's like I luckily I was just old enough to know that, you know, to try to keep some level of humility because you're not a cinematographer. You are a student, <laughs> you're, yeah. you know, and the directors are students and the, you know, producers are students. So if you take that shit too much to heart, then you're going to end up um, <laughs> walking out of that place, you know, thinking that you're qualified to direct a film or thinking you're qualified to shoot a film or whatever else. But no, your film school continues. And, you know, if you take the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour approach, you know, you got to do your time before you're going to do anything decent. So that's what we were doing. We were cutting our teeth, you know. And luckily at Corman, you could get 10,000 hours in about two weeks. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) And you got paid for, you know, 40 hours. But yes, you were doing 10,000 hours. So I was, by the time I was 27 and went to AFI, I had already been kind of a professional cameraman for nine years. Had you gone to another film school before you went to AFI? No, I didn't. I got a job as a PA at a television station and managed to sort of grab a camera and kind of get behind the camera. What made you decide to do that at that age? Well, it's it's sort of interesting. It was a confluence of things. My father, who was worked at ABC News at that time, was trying to get me out of the house and he knew these guys that had that used to work for the networks that were starting this television station in Maryland, in rural Maryland. He basically begged them to hire me as a PA so I could move, you know, 700 miles away from uh, where I was torturing my parents in New York. <laughs> but I look, I, I, I was a super eight nut in high school. So I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a filmmaker for sure. So you already had the bug. Like, where did the bug come from? When did it start? Uh, it's interesting. Again, I think the bug really came from, you know, being around my father, who oddly enough was a journalist. I mean, he, he was a television news producer, you know, he's, he did live live events for ABC News as an executive producer and producer. So I was around cameras, I was around lights, and I was around stages. And But then I also was, I, I you know, I love films. 
And and my dad took me to see 2001, you know, when it was released and I was only seven years old at the time. And, oh, wow. uh, and I kind of uh, continued to go to watch that film from, I remember they did a re-release, a 10 year anniversary in 1979 or 78, I guess it was. How does a 10 year old receive 2001 A Space Odyssey? I mean, yeah, you don't, you don't, there's no question about it. But, but interestingly enough, what you get out of it is this sort of, you know, the, the visceral power of, of this beautiful 65 millimeter, 70 millimeter image on the screen and sure. the visual effects just hold up today. And, you know, they're just, it's just an extraordinarily well-crafted film. So God only knows what, what was in my mind when this was going on, <laughs> but the, the, the experience was such that that's that's what I took away from it at seven or eight years old and and then was fortunate enough to see it in 1978 the way it was meant to be seen on LSD you know at that point I was a teenager <laughs> 10 years later and I was like ah oh, now I get it I'm 10 years you know late to this game you, you have to realize I, I graduated from high school in 1979 and we felt like we missed everything by 10 years like we wanted to you had punk rock punk rock was brand new in 1970 we did have punk rock but we want we wished we were at woodstock we you know yeah. we wished we'd seen hendrix play and uh and we wish we'd drop acid for 2001 so got to do that on the 10th anniversary so that really became you know a, a seminal film for me and by the way that same year apocalypse now was released so I was a huge film buff and really absorbed as much cinema, if you will, as I could. And again, I had a Super 8 camera growing up in high school. So I, you know, we, we made all these Super 8 films when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, wow. Yeah. Do you, do you still have any of them? I do. I do. There, you know, I've got some of the, the family. It's so funny because some of this day, it's just they're, they're horrendously badly, you know, shot, um, which would be so fun to be able to show them, you know. We, I was panning way too fast. It was all you know, yeah. blurred and, and fucked up. And and then for some reason, I, sh I shot an entire. So this was the, around the era of 2001 or something. I made my own space movie, you know, because I had these space uh -huh. models. I built these space models. Didn't even consider doing stop motion. I put the space models on on wires and and then with the super eight camera. But it didn't occur to me that I needed a diopter on the front lens. So everything was out of focus. Oh. But I still cut it together and made the movie. And, you know, um, my dad actually at that time, and I was probably whatever, 10 years old or something, 11 years old. I maybe older than that. I don't know. I was I, okay. I was 30. Um, <laughs> no, my dad, my dad dubbed me soft focus fister, um, which he, uh, he called me that literally, literally for oh, the rest man. of his life. <laughs> That's a harsh thing to say to a 13 year old. My dad, dad called me that. Poor. My dad called me that like on the way to the Oscars one night, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, soft focus fister. You know. Yeah. My dad always made fun of me for the lack of a diopter in my early films. As well. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll talk about like what you did after you know because you you did Corman you 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 worked on a, on several projects for Corman and then you went on to to do some other work and if you could talk about like what that work was because I I think it's easy to dismiss low budget work but obviously it got you memento so yeah the so low budget work was essential and look I I had a really kind of an unusual but when you look back on it, perhaps logical, you know, struggle to, to get to where I eventually got to, which, which is that, you know, after the two Corman films that I did, I did these really super low budget 
erotic thrillers. I remember how they kind of came about. They were straight to video uh, erotic thrillers is what they call them. So they had a they had a sex scene in them, but and they had really bad action scenes in them. And they had these actors that were sort of on at that time were on you know hard times. Jan Michael Vincent was mm. in a bunch of these, and Stephen Bauer was in one that I did, and David Carradine was in several of them. Um, so you know it was they were always looking for a bargain with the actor. So if the actor was kind of you know in a, in a rough place in the career, you know you could get him for a deal. And that's what happened in those films. So, so I did. I got in a, in a streak with it with a guy named uh, uh, Greg Hippolyte, who who came from a porn background. Um, and we did like a few of these films. We did like three or four of these films that went straight to tape, and just was cranking out. And then I, I, I honestly was feeling really like I, I wasn't getting anywhere. I felt like I was spinning my wheels. I was doing a bunch of these really crap exploitation films. They're not getting me any kind of what I what we all wanted was you know was to be able to do cool indie films. Around this time, I'm burned out. I decided to start turning down some of these you know more exploitive films. And Faden come came to me and asked me if I wanted to. He finally scored like a a, a couple of good. He had been working with John Turtletaub, and mm-hmm. um and they went from doing a like a three million dollar movie that that killed at the box office. You know, the film got sold to Disney or something, and it, it ended up making thirty million dollars or something like that. So so John had this huge success early on, and brought Faden with him, and they did cool runnings together. And then they pulled me in for two movies. I did a movie called While You Were Sleeping with them and then Phenomenon. Um, So anyway, Faden came to me, you know, uh, and and asked me if I wanted to operate for him on these films. I'd been DPing on this shit, as I said, for a couple of years. (laughs) And now, you know, okay, we're doing this film. John Travolta is starring in it. You know, Sandra Bullock is in it. You know, these these are the the collection of films. And, you know, but these are some, some real movies. So, you know, the choice was in front of me whether to continue doing exploitation crap as a DP. And by the way, I was really cutting my teeth on lighting at this point. Not that the lighting was good, but I was practicing and I was learning my craft, you know. Well, it's a pressure cooker. Like how many days would most of those movies shoot? Oh shit, man. We we actually did something really cool because I, I was, I, I did pride myself on being able to shoot fast as did Janish and as did Faden. But we had it, we would knock out these films. I think the general shooting schedule was 18 days then mm. then you know it was a challenge the producer would kept coming up to me and saying all right can you you think you can do a film in 15 days and he would give me a little extra money and to put push along the director push the crew and we did it man we we did a couple of those films like 15 days and then and then I, i'll never forget the the producer came to me and the director and the ad and said do you think you can knock out a, a feature film in 12 days and i was like I don't know. And um, and we somehow actually created a system. And it was all, for the producer, it was all about the money. It was all about sort of just figuring out how cheaply can we make these and how, you know, and it was all about shortening the, the amount of days. And I said, well, look, let me figure this out. If we shoot the whole thing in, you know, one or two houses and we figured out how to shoot the film, they added another film to it, if you can imagine, so we figured out how to shoot two movies in 25 days. And wow. this, is, this is on film, you know, on, you know, with Ari BL's fours, you know, and, and, and lighting and, and interiors and everything. And, and so, so we, we, we had these two houses that were like right next door to each other. 
and we would sort of block shoot and we we did it. We fucking knocked out two feature films. I'm not going to say anything about the quality of the films or the lighting or anything about them, but we actually pulled off two feature films in 25 days. Yeah, what have you, what have I done in the last That's month? And, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, they, but awesome. they were but they were thrilled with it. You know, the producer was thrilled cuz all he wanted to do was, you know, walk away with as much money as he could and, you know, sold the films and and you know, went to straight to VHS. So anyway, look, it was not without its experience and set of challenges and fun. Um, but I was pining to to do quality work. You know, I had worked with Robert Altman, whatever, four or five years before. So I was feeling kind of like I'd hoed myself out a bit. And and so Faden gave me that opportunity. And, and we did this string of, you know, of high-end big studio features for a number of years. And, and to be honest, that's what allowed me to kind of move beyond and I and on, it was on phenomenon you know which was that was like 95 or 96 something like that and we yeah. did, did that film and it did really well in the box office so everybody knew the movie so suddenly now when that's on my resume even when I was applying for a job as a DP and I think the last thing I started with Faden working on was Mouse Hunt with Gore Verbinski, Gore Verbinski's first yeah. movie. And I didn't really do much work on that. Faden wanted to operate the camera. So so I bailed out and I left. But what happened was I got this little indie to do based on the fact that I was doing the higher quality work and had something on a on paper. Because it was really hard to get a job, you know, as it is now. It's not, you know, it's... <clears throat> It's, you know, none of us had it easy, you know. And remember, I did, this is, we're heading, this is like eight years after I'd come to Hollywood at that point. So I got this little film. It was actually the sound mixer from Phenomenon, a guy named Ron Judkins, who was, his, has been and was Spielberg's sound mixer forever. Um, and he wanted to go off and direct his own indie films. So he, we became friends on the set of Phenomenon. And he hired me to shoot this film called The High Line. And it was a real micro-budget film. I, I think it was less than, than a half a million dollars. And we shot it in Montana in the winter. And he he had this wonderful visual aesthetic, he being Ron, the director. Um, and I had some great ideas for it. And and so we made a really sweet little, you know, independent film. And as luck would have it, it got accepted at Sundance. And so it was a real showcase piece for me. And finally, I had something out there that I wasn't, embarrassed <laughs> um uh with nothing to be embarrassed about you were working i mean you know i was working man i was making a little and by the way too i had two kids and a wife and mortgage and you know the whole yeah. gamut even at, at that age so to make a long story short chris nolan had seen that film that year he was there with following he had seen that film and it was about a year later that that you know he remembered me and reached out to me. Uh, as I like to t to tell people, his first five choices weren't available, so um, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to get the job. And I mean, I, I will tell you that for a fact. I mean, the the greatest regret of his life, I'm sure, was Peter Deming, who's a, you know a wonderful uh, friend oh. of DP. And Peter, um, I love love his work. <laughs> his work is great. And Lost yeah. Highways, like his his his. Oh role. my God, I agree with you. That and Evil Dead too. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Well, Evil Dead. Well, that's what Peter came to town, you know, with with Sam Raimi, and yeah. and um, and I and I end up subsequently shooting, uh, you know, some second unit stuff for Peter and and doing some B camera operating, etc. So so we knew each other uh, and were friends. But also, Chris had ended up offering Memento to Peter Deming. I mean, flat out. And Peter was had already made a deal with Wes Craven for Scream. 
And I, mm. I can't remember whether it was Scream 1 or Scream 2, but he had made that deal and couldn't get out of his contract. So he had to turn down Memento. And we laughed about that for, you know, 20 years now. Before we go into Christopher Nolan, I'm just curious, uh, when you were doing camera operation for Faden, was th- was there the temptation? Because, like, you can make a damn fine living as a camera operator and work on those big shows. Was there a temptation to just stay on the camera operator track and not pursue being a cinematographer at that time? It's, it's, it's interesting you say that, Ben, because it was a really difficult decision at the time because the, financially – it was, uh, and I remember sort of the, the the opportunity, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a film with Faden. It was it was something else came up, and there were a couple other uh, um, DPs that I was starting to get to know and and to work with. But that was paying the, the operating jobs were paying good money, and they were union, so I was getting my insurance. They're paying well, and so that was a huge time. And I again, I had two kids, and I just bought my first house, and the the movie. The High Line that I did with Ron was I, I had to take this massive cut in pay. It was paying about a third of what a camera operating job would pay because mm-hmm. it was such a low budget film. And I remember things were so tight at the time. And I'd done, you know, I I guess I had some money in the bank, but but I, I had to to be able to afford to do Ron's film. And 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 again, if you think about it, I think that I think he was paying me like a thousand dollars a week or something like that. Oh wow! You know, in nineteen ninety seven or ninety eight, something like that. And to be honest, I was like, I was probably making four grand a week as a camera operator. No, maybe not that much, but but probably double that as a camera operator. You know, on a union movie. So it was it was a tough choice. I remember having to pay the mortgage on my house on a credit card. And by the way, like interest rates were like 8% at that time too. So so it's like an 8%, you know, mortgage rate. I'm paying it on a credit card. It's like 22% or something like that. So I really, it was a risk for me. It was a financial risk for me to do this. And I kind of went into debt to do that film, you know, knowing reasonably if I needed, you know, to do some operating after it. And I think I did for sure. Uh, I could jump onto something else, but it was a risk, but it was a risk that really paid off. And, and that I, I used to tell that a lot of film schools, that story, because it's like, you have to take a chance. You've got to take a risk. You, you know, you're going to get stagnant. I mean, to answer your question, there was no version where I was going to be satisfied being a lifetime, you know, camera mm-hmm. operator. I, I definitely, the, 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 the goal was to, to work my way back into being a DP with more quality titles under my belt. And that, and it worked out, but I did have to take a risk on that one. And let me ask you too, like when you did the high line, were you focused at that time on like, I need to get back behind the camera and be, and be a DP or did the material of the high line just really inspire you? And were you excited about telling that story? Like what was it? Was it a push or a pull that brought you back into, into shooting? It was really both. I mean, I was very desperate to get back to shooting again, but Ron had written a really nice script and it was very sweet and very, you know, stark and very indie. Funny enough, I've been doing all this big studio movies as a, as a camera operator, I've been doing all this exploitive uh, shit as a DP. Um, but what I was really loving and watching were the in- independent films. You know, uh, Sex Lies and Videotape had come out a few years before and really kind of kicked in like the cool indie films. So, you know, independent films in the 90s and the early and mid 90s were really great. And yeah. and so I want, I was like, God, why can't I be doing that kind of stuff as a DP? And and when I read Ron's script, I really saw that as as an as an opportunity. And so I was at Sundance 
with that film. And I remember some of the other films like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels was at Sundance that year. Mm-hmm. So there I was, you know, I did that film. It was well received. The photography was very well received, and it it really set things off. Let's uh, let's move into Christopher Nolan, and uh, I I'm going to do my best to avoid asking you all the same questions everyone asks you about working with Christopher Nolan. But I have to ask about when you were given the script to Memento. To me, it's one of the most. Per- I saw that movie twice in the theater. It it's one of those movies that is a perfect blend of storytelling and visual style. How much of the visual style was already kind of on the page in there? Because it's a movie that literally puts you in the point of view of the main character in choosing to tell the story in reverse the way that it does. Uh, how much of that was on the page? I'm going to say a lot of it was on the page. You know, Chris had already decided that he wanted to shoot, you know, half in color and half in black and white. And obviously, you know, any any DP is going to get excited about that. It was a very confusing script, obviously. And, and I had to read it several times and I still didn't, you know, didn't process everything on it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll have to watch Tenet five or six times. Um, <laughs> but 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 yes, it was a very complex. But I knew when I read it and it, strangely enough, I was doing this other independent film in, in Alabama uh, at the time in Birmingham, Alabama. And I got the script and I was like, wow, this is. This is really extraordinary. And yeah, there are two things, you know, you know, the editor ended up getting uh, nominated for for an Oscar, I I believe. I think Mm -hmm. Dodie got nominated for an Oscar. Dodie Dorn was the editor um, who then went on to work with Ridley Scott a bunch. I believe she was nominated and Chris got nominated for the the screenplay. But it's interesting because we we always sort of not not anything, you know, Dodie did a beautiful job cutting it. But it really all that structure was in the script. You know, mm-hmm. um, obviously, uh, it's it's the only way it could have worked, and all the 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 descriptions of you know of what was to be in black and white and color, obviously, were in the script too. So, so yeah, really, I, I would say it was it was in there. What Chris had liked about my style was it, it kind of went along with his aesthetic, which was it was a very naturalistic style. Um, mm-hmm. You know that I had done on the High Line. Uh, he liked the fact that I had this, you know, bigger movie experience as well. And um, but but I think it was that that simplicity and the very sort of minimal approach to lighting uh, that he liked uh, that made sense for him for uh, for Memento. So so yeah, I you know I had got I got a call from my agent. I was doing shooting nights in Alabama on this movie and. Uh, and I said, yeah, this is great. I, you know, I'd love to talk to them on the phone. And she said, no, no, you have to, you're going to have to come out. You're going to have to meet with them or you're not going to, you know, get the job. And I was like, well, I can't, I'm shooting nights. I'm doing six day weeks. And, and she said, well, you're going to have to figure it out if you want to get this job. And I read the script again and I was like, fuck, I got to do this, man. So, so I said, look, if he can meet on Sunday, <laughs> I will fly that morning. Well, you know, so to make a long story short, we shot Saturday night. I got on a plane Sunday morning after filming. So I hadn't slept, oh, um, flew out to LA to, to sat down and met with Chris and then got on a plane and flew back to Alabama and then had to film the next day on that, that Monday. Uh, so it was a crazy whirlwind thing, but you know, lo and behold, you know, I got, the, I got the gig. Was there a crazy amount of heat on that script? Cause he had made a movie that was well-received called following that you were talking about. 
but that was really there wasn't cool. a crazy amount of heat because you know his close friend Aaron Ryder uh, came on. They I, I think they had been readers together. Uh, they both worked at Working Title, and Aaron was you know uh, thought the script was incredible and and was you know vowed to figure out a way to make it. The interesting thing was after Memento was made. They couldn't sell it to a studio. Everybody loved the film. Everybody <laughs> loved the script, but nobody would, you know, nobody would bite. You know, you had the, the, all these, these, you know, Sony classics and and Paramount class. I don't know what what all the indie thing, Miramax, and nobody would, nobody wanted to buy the film. Uh, so Aaron worked at New Market, and they not only financed the film, but ended up distributing it themselves. Because after it went to the festivals, every it was a Big hit at the festivals, obviously, and everybody, um, but everybody passed on picking up. So they're like, "Fuck it, we'll do it ourselves." And they made a lot of money on it, you know, for an independent film. You know, made twenty five million dollars in, uh, you know, uh, in domestic box office, uh, which was a testament to Chris's cleverness. I mean, and nothing else, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, I, I've watched that movie somewhat recently, and it, it doesn't feel like a low-budget movie when you're watching it, but if you take a step back and go, like, how hard would it be to get these locations? How hard would it be, you know, like, how many people are in this? It's 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 such a contained uh, story. Can you talk about, like, what you did? Because I feel like it's a lot of what made that movie feel like a bigger movie than what it was was your work in it. Uh, what was your thought process, or how did you go about kind of constructing the visual approach to it to make it feel kind of like a bigger i don't know it's it it just feels like such a bigger, bigger film. film you know again again i was i was in a good time in my career where i where it had some good experience behind me i you know chris had a great sense for how he wanted this film to look and 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 we both you know landed in this this you know perfect sync uh, in terms of naturalistic lighting uh you know i didn't like fussy lighting i didn't like stylized stuff i liked you know, and by the way, it came from documentaries. So it was like stick a guy in front of a window and, you know, the natural light coming in. We sort of recreated a bit of that on on, on sets that we built in a warehouse in Burbank. Um, but so, you know, I think strangely enough, I think what, what a great value of what I brought to that film and not to take anything away from my, you know, talent. But but a lot of what I brought to it was I had all these years in low budget filmmaking. So now go back to, you know, my shooting two days two movies in 25 days but so i could make it look pretty good uh but i could do it damn fast so we you know the the shooting schedule was 25 days and it was a four million dollar budget and it, it's pretty challenging to do all that stuff in 25 days i mean very challenging yeah. and chris had made the decision by the way they were going to shoot it in canada and i think they they said they could he could either have like 28 days in canada or 25 days in LA or something like that. It may have been more days in Canada. I don't know, but he chose to shoot it in LA because he wanted to, you know, wanted a, an LA crew and um, nothing against Canadian crews, but he, he you know, uh, he wanted to make a film in Hollywood, you know, and, and I think that the setting, obviously, he wanted it to be authentic. So, so really, I was able to do things really fast, you know, with Chris. So, so we could be spontaneous with ideas. We could, you know, I lit stuff fast. So that wasn't dragging things down. He would have time to work with performances. So, you know, again, you know, I had gotten my, my, my hours in. Maybe not quite 10,000 doing movies, but I shot all these low-budget films. I got really yeah. adept at lighting fast and making it look, you know, pretty good. But then had done something more aesthetic with Ron's film with Highline and sort of applied those, you know, uh, aesthetics and the speed uh, to Chris's film. And, and I think, again, you know, look, 
it's less about the look than everything else about it. But I think the the the, the collaboration really really worked. And again, we we carried that over very nicely into the into the the next film. You know. Yeah, into Insomnia, and then you kind of went in the opposite direction of uh, previous the previous Batman movies mm-hmm. by continuing that naturalism that you did, even in something like I I, I feel like the Batman movies have been talked about to death, and I would love to talk about them. But I also want to talk about the Prestige because that's an extraordinarily naturalistic movie which if I'm not mistaken was mostly shot in LA and it, and it looks like England in the 1800s or yeah in fact it was all shot in LA with the exception of I th- I'm gonna say two days in Colorado it might have been three days in Colorado but yeah I mean I, I really that was this incredible vision you know that Chris and and Nathan Crowley you know pulled off together Nathan Crowley's Chris's longtime production designer and mm-hmm. we we first worked together on insomnia and really I think the two of them together watching them prep a film was really uh incredible but but I think that that in Chris's mind it was like look there's still a lot of turn of the century, you know, architecture, particularly warehouses and, and industrial spaces in L.A. Um, there, these theaters all go back to around this time, and I think the, the movie takes place around 1906. You know, it's it's right yeah. around whatever it is. So, so they found all this these places, and it is pretty extraordinary. Then we then we you know shot at the top of Mount Wilson. Um, you know, in the observatory up there, which again mm-hmm. goes back to almost that era. So they found it all here. The only thing that was a little more difficult were filming London streets. So Nathan converted Universal Studios, uh, one of those big streets, whatever it was, the New York Street or something, into into London. And, um, you know, it did an extraordinary job. I mean, so much of that is, you know, it, it was a feast for, for us visually, I have to say. I mean, the opportunity to do, and again, coming after a Batman movie and, and you know, I had a blast yeah. in the Batman movie, but Chris wanted to do things a lot looser. He wanted to much more handheld camera. And we shot probably about 85% of the prestige handheld, I would say. Um, even crane shots, I would like be handheld on the crane. With <laughs> well, it kind of adds to the sense of like you're watching a magic show, kind of waiting for the sleight of hand, and and you're not relying on anything. There was a movie that came out, I think, the same year called The Illusionist with with Edward Norton, and I remember there was a, bu- a bunch of CGI in the magic that they were doing, and I was like, man, in the Prestige, it all felt completely real. I know that you were doing compositing with two Hugh Jackmans and stuff like that, but yeah, but there was very little of that. There re- was really, you know, maybe those all those. Sp- Sparks from the machine and stuff, I remember, was a big visual effect, but not much else. There really wasn't. I mean, Chris, to this day, obviously, I think that's that's been talked about with Tenet as well as, as, you know, uh, does things in camera until he can't, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and does things practically. And, and, you know, and also doesn't fly with the second unit. He shoots all of it, right? Exactly right. We never had a second unit. So does that mean that you shoot all of it? So when you're working on the Dark Knight and they have these giant uh, model shots and stuff like that, are you shooting the model shots? I didn't shoot the models. I didn't shoot the models. And I, I talked about that quite quite a bit, um, but they didn't uh, uh, they didn't bring me on for the model shoots, you know, which which went on. First of all, they began while we were still filming, but then they they went on, you know, afterwards. I would have loved to have been more involved, but they, you know, that's that's a whole that was a whole separate machine. Um, you know, that was pretty incredible. And it was pretty incredible too. That was at a time where people were really leaning into visual effects more and trusting it. And Chris didn't, you know, Chris was just like, no, I want to do it old school. I want to do models. And a lot of those model companies were just starting to go out of business too. And Chris had to really sort of resurrect (laughs) miniatures quite a bit, you know, to, 
to to be able to to pull those things off and you know the thing in batman begins that the the subway train or the the elevated train uh work is all this kind of giant models it's hard to call it a miniature because they were massive these these models and um and did quite a bit of the work on that um but yeah so the prestige so the vibe for for me was like yeah nathan you know had these incredibly textured real sets and and for me it was all about the firelight you know and, and having mm-hmm. this wonderful orange firelight and so there are times when we use real lanterns and you know as as the sources lighting sources and then we built a bunch of small you know lighting instruments in that same color temperature that that uh that augmented uh, the firelight, but it, 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 it's just a, it, it's just a great, I mean, that's what Chris really kind of handed to me and, and, and now Hoyta's, you know, uh, loving it, I'm sure is just, it's, it, it, there's visual feast in films, you know, in Sami, it's like, okay, this is all takes place, you know, uh, where it's, it's midnight all day long. So you figure out the look for it. This guy's got insomnia, yeah. you know, so it, it just lends itself to a look to, to a visual, you know, and, and memento is black and white and color. And then Batman begins is, you know, we're going to reinvent the, the the Batman thing. And now with the prestige, we're going to shoot this handheld. Um, but I get to play with lighting before electricity. So it was always a, a real blast and, and very stimulating work for me, um, you know, and the collaboration only got better. I think it's fascinating to kind of see how when your career took off with Memento or how when that movie hit, you and Christopher Nolan together working like had, I think, possibly the most amazing career trajectory of any two filmmakers I can I can honestly think of in that, you know, you went from Memento, then you did Insomnia, which is an awesome movie. And I feel like people don't watch it enough. Really beautiful. And then (laughs) Batman begins and reinvented, honestly reinvented Batman, reinvented uh, the superhero movie genre in a way and in a way that I feel like we're still uh, superhero movies are still kind of grasping to redo what what you two did so well back then. But let's let's go a little bit back and and uh, and kind of talk about Insomnia because when you did Memento, you definitely had some known actors, some faces we were familiar with. But then in Insomnia, it feels like a big studio film, uh, whereas Memento feels like an indie film that definitely uh, out performs in every way and look in in scale and scope and everything but is still a contained story and insomnia is just such a bigger story was that leap uh for you almost bigger than the the previous leaps that you had with uh the highline and memento and stuff like that yeah i really think it was because you know when when the project came up chris uh, hadn't completely cast it yet, and there were a number of different names involved. Um, but but it, right away, and and it's it's important to note that where where that project came from, um, uh, for Chris, uh, which was you know we completed Memento, and it was it was yeah. a huge success, and and it was really you know it really set things off for me. I think I think I got my first commercial to shoot you know following Memento. You know, uh, prior to that, I really hadn't shot any commercials, and and of course that's kind of how I make my living right now. Um, but it was it was. A, you know, it, it really was quite a, uh, a launching pad for for me, uh, and certainly Chris was on fire. You know, meetings at every yeah. studio, and 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 quickly, you know, found some kin at at Warner Brothers. And uh, but it was really the the folks that, as, as I understand it, uh, you know, it was really Steven Soderbergh 
who had seen Memento and championed Memento, who who had gone to Warner Brothers, and I, I guess uh, you know Stephen was originally attached to direct uh, Insomnia, the the remake of Insomnia, and kind of went to Warner Brothers and said uh, whether he couldn't do it or, or or decided it wasn't right for him, or whatever else. He said, you know, who should do this project is Chris Nolan. That's my understanding, if, if my memory serves me correct. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, to answer your question, yeah, it was a big, it was a big jump for us. It was a big difference. Again, Memento's budget was around $4 million. This now was like, I think it was $47 million budget, yeah. 647, something like that. So yeah, it was a huge leap and it felt like a huge leap, but really the next level was when it was, you know, when, when Al was cast, when Al Pacino was cast. And that's, and that's when you go, oh, fuck, this is... <laughs> It's real, and and it was because obviously being a you know a, a product of the seventies, you know obviously Al was a huge hero um, to me, and and you know an enormous uh, respect for him, and uh, uh, and so it really. And so the project really took off. And, you know, the, the part of Robin Williams was originally going to be Jeffrey Rush. Oh, uh, interesting. And, and they couldn't make that work. Uh, and then Robin uh, fell into place. And, and I think uh, at first, uh, you know, Chris was a little hesitant, but then I, in, the, in the end, I think he really, really was happy, obviously, with Robin's performance and really thrilled that it came out the way it did. But yeah, it, it, felt, it felt big to us. And it felt like we, we also had sort of the, 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 the budget, the time, the ability to kind of go to the next level. I can't remember what the number of shooting days were, but it was substantially more. It was double the amount that, that you know, Memento was. And, and it's kind of an interesting thing when you look at, I've spoken a lot about shoot days and the number of shoot days. Yeah. And we all think about those quite a bit because if you think of the abstract nature of it, I think the longest shoot schedule I ever had was probably one of the Batman movies, either Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises, which I think was probably around 126 days or something like that. And as I mentioned, the shortest shoot schedule was 12 days. So, so <laughs> it's the same 90 minutes on the screen, or it's the same two hours on the screen. But can you imagine the difference in shooting something in, you know, we're, we won't even count the 12 days, but let's say yeah. we, I did multiple films. I did many films that were 15-day shoots, 15, 18-day shoots for entire feature films. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's really kind of interesting how that varies. But, you know, if I think, I think Insomnia was probably about a 50-day shooting schedule, which really felt grand and, and, and like we could do something. And Chris had very specific things in mind. And the fog scene in particular was, you know, a, 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 to be a technical feat for us. And we met some, you know, we shot the whole movie in British Columbia, um, most of it in and around Vancouver. And then a bit of it uh, up in northern BC. Um, I, I have a, a question about uh, insomnia, which is that light often is how we kind of show like everything's out in the open and we can see it all, and, and it's and it's not usually used as a, as a way to build tension. Like light is 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 a happy thing if if I can be super reductive, but in that movie, light is not just kind of a malignancy because you're dealing with someone with insomnia who's like constantly taping up his windows and stuff and he's in a place where the sun is always out so light is also kind of a uh it's fully a character in the movie how did you go about kind of constructing uh the aspects of that character if you will 
I mean, it's 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 a fantastically worded question, Ben, because that that was that was the essence of it for for me from a visual standpoint. Is I you know, and again, I, I've mentioned that Chris really gave me something you know to to work with on every single film, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from a visual standpoint. So you know, if I found myself from one film to the next pinching myself, you know, and going, wow, I mean, this is, you know, to have this to play with, uh, you know, um, is, is really, is really a cinematographer's gift. And, and, and that's, that's exactly as we broke it down psychologically, how that sort of played. And I think it was wonderful for Al as well. Um, and yeah, the, the light of day that he could not escape, you know, was obviously a, a metaphor for this, this guilt that he had for a crime that he had committed that he couldn't escape either. But it was also this menacing thing that, that, that was, uh, again, constantly present, but it also was starting to build up his, you know, temporary insanity because Mm. he's now suffering uh, from sleep deprivation as well. And that's what starts to build to this level where he can no longer control what's going on in his life. Um, So, so look for a cinematographer to be able to have, that kind of you know tool that gift into the storytelling as one of his sort of you know tools to play with is 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 extraordinary and really was a lot of fun it was a real feast for me to be able to play with that and you know uh al understood it as well and 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 i had one of my best early collaborations with a you know with an actor and uh, happened to be a great movie star you know al pacino uh, you know, there's a scene where Al goes into this uh, young man's house and he's kind of searching around. And then the and the police are supposed to, I think he's he's looking for this evidence to try to get it before the police get there, um, the local police. And so he, he goes into this home and he's searching around. And then he hears while he's searching, he goes into the bathroom and he hears the police coming into the house. So he, he quickly sort of tries to hide. It's, it's then that he goes in the bathroom. So he hears the police coming in the door and, and kind of makes his way into the bathroom. And, um, you know, again, wanting this element of light to constantly be piercing and, and, uh, and part of the story, you know, I decided to put this really, really bright xenon type light coming through the window of the bathroom. So it's very dark in there and it's very moody, um, except for this one kind of shaft of, of uh, crisp light coming through the window. And, you know, Al is not a guy that you talk to a lot on set. You want to be really careful. There are times to talk to him. There's, you know, but you don't tell him uh, to hit a mark. You don't, you know, he, he'll hit his mark and you put it down once you rehearse. Uh, but you don't really, you know, engage in a lot of dialogue to take him out of his what he's doing his character. But I knew this was a moment I needed to speak to him. I, I talked to Chris, you know, uh, about it beforehand. I said, look, I'd like to talk to him about this and, and you know, make sure we're on the same page. And so I, I went up to Alan and I said, look, I just want to, you know, give you a little bit of a, 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 an idea of what I'm doing here, which is I've got this super bright light in the room. It's otherwise pretty dark. So when you're trying to hide from these other, <laughs> you know, these, these people coming into the house, on your escape, you're going to get hit by this super bright light. And it's a burning light, just so you know. <laughs> and, uh, and not that I wanted to guide or affect his performance, but I wanted him to be able to use it. And so, you know, I was like, got it, got it, you know, and, and sure enough, you know, when we film it and I was in there with a handheld camera and Al busts into the room and, and kind of goes through this bright bit of light 
and 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 just kind of recoils from it and then goes into the bathtub and pulls the pulls the curtain i think that's how it goes it's been many years since i've seen it um but it but it, it worked so well and i felt again this is kind of early in my career but i just felt like i'm at a moment here where i'm collaborating with this great artist and it's a it's a moment where performance and lighting come together so uh, you know, organically, and, uh, and and the scene worked so well, and he used it, and and you know, I spoke about it often at the time, and uh, you know, and Al came back to me afterwards and just kind of you know acknowledged. He just kind of grabbed my arm and just kind of acknowledged, gave me a little nod, like, oh wow, like that was cool, you know. And then we had another, you know, then so this relationship starts to develop, and you realize that there is a relationship between. The performer and the you know and the the director of photography and the and the the camera operator and, and I operated the camera on, on all of Chris's films and and look you have to be respectful you know to the director and, and everything has to go through the director if you're going to have a relationship like that um, but but it is a, a, a valid relationship that kind of helps uh, with the storytelling augments the storytelling and in particular when the light is such a strong part of the narrative. Um, it really kind of helps take it to the next level. And that's that's what we we're trying to do. So I want to uh, go ahead and plunge headfirst into uh, Batman. But but it's not just Batman. It's sort of uh, the, the work in general that you did with Christopher Nolan, which you were talking earlier about, you know, kind of the naturalism that you were going for. And can you talk about that approach to fantastical stories being told in uh, naturalistic ways? That is a philosophy that, that sort of was brought to me by Chris very early on. And, and he felt that if there was something, you know, unusual happening in the story and, and, and if, you know, the viewers needed to be paying attention to the narrative and what he's trying to do. And, and of course, that begins with Memento, you know, having this complex structure, then he doesn't want anything in the photography that's going to distract from that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in our earliest conversations, he, he liked my naturalistic style. Um, I sort of lean towards that naturalistic style, but with with some mood to it, you know. My, I mean, my all time hero, you know, for cinematography was Gordon Willis, um, mm. and Gordon, you know, created style through naturalism. And if you look at obviously the Godfather movies, Godfather Two in particular, you know, had this incredible dark <laughs> undertone and style, but it was all very naturalistic. And then, you know, something like All the President's Men is a very naturalistic movie and, and really, you know, doesn't have as much style in the lighting, um, but it's beautiful and it, it, it tells the story well. And, and you know, that was a very, very real period of time, you know, uh, yeah. it seems trivial compared to what we're going through now, but um, it, was, it was a hugely, you know, uh, real uh, time in our lives. Um, and then another one is Clute, you know, that's oh, got yeah. a very naturalistic, you know, vibe and style to it. And so, so that's why I loved Gordon's work and, and his style of lighting. And this really worked with Chris's philosophy. And he, he really didn't, never wanted, you know, the photography to get in the way. And as I've said, he, he gave me enough to work with. You know, he gave visual stimulus as cinematographers to, to, to play with and to work on, uh, you know, insomnia being, you know, with, a, with the, the light being a character, as you mentioned, uh, Memento with color and black and white, uh, you know, Batman with, with us trying to recreate a style of a, uh, of a comic book film. And then certainly Inception with with diving, you know, in and out of dreams. And then, of course, the period 
vibe, uh, you know, in, in prestige. So look, it was always, there's always plenty for me to, to play with and work with there without having to feel like I needed to force any kind of stylized look into it. Um, so that was the, that was the philosophy. All right. That was uh, Wally Fister part one. Uh, make sure you tune back in to your podcast subscription next week because we will have the continuation of this uh, fantastic conversation. If you liked what you heard, it's only going to get better. Man, oh man. He's just nothing but brilliant stories. Like it's so much stuff that that I feel like we could have talked to him for five solid days. We could do a master class with Wally Fister. And uh, anyway, and I love his work. So it's it's easy to talk about what he does. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is that time for our multi-Oscar winning, I'm just making that up, that's total bullshit, um, short end segment. So, uh, we're going to talk about our pet obsession of the week. So, uh, what's your pet obsession, friendo? Okay. Um, I like saying friendo, it sounds like such an such a threat. Uh, my, my pet obsession actually is really recent, it's from yesterday. Uh, I saw a movie uh, on a lark. I wasn't really sure what it was, and uh, I started watching it, and before I knew it, I was super hooked, and it was exactly what I needed. It was sort of light, not particularly heavy, but uh, it was fun, and it was an interesting twist, and I'd never heard of it or seen it before, and it is called Frequently Asked Questions About Time Travel. came out in 2009. I've never heard of this movie. Yeah, it uh, was directed by uh, Gareth Karavik, who sadly passed away. And uh, yeah, Aww. yeah, it seems not long after the movie was released. And so, uh, yeah, it, I maybe it didn't get the uh, the sort of uh, widespread. I, I'd never heard of this movie. Well, actually, I take that back. I had heard about it and I'd heard good things, but I never heard enough. I never heard like uh, I mean, it doesn't have uh, huge. I, I've honestly never even heard okay, of it. So it's got Chris O'Dowd, who's always wonderful in it. Mm. Uh, Anna Ferris, who was the only other person in the cast that I was uh, familiar with. And then it's got a couple of other uh, the actors who uh, and it's a it's a British film. And God, it's really, really smart. It's a contained movie. And when you look at the credits and you see the cast is like seven or eight people, you, you realize how contained it, re- it really is. And it's pretty much all kind of takes place in and around a pub with 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 only a little bit of uh, straying from that. Uh, It's got some visual effects, which are, you know, on the I'm not going to say campy side, but they're not like, you know, you're not watching a Marvel movie, but they certainly are serviceable and they they do the job. Because Marvel special effects are never campy. Well, I I would say not lately. Marvel special effects. (laughs) I mean, you know, the special effects they're doing is insane. But okay, so frequently asked questions about time travel it sort of gives the vibe of like a Shaun of the Dead it kind of it's not taking itself totally seriously but it's serious enough that you're into the story you're into the characters you're into what's happening and it's kind of a story just about three blokes who end up in this weird sort of time loop but it's not a time loop like you've seen before and it's it kind of smartly plays out it it references other movies about time travel but without being over the top you think it's going to be like a hot tub time machine even though i'm pretty sure this predates hot tub time machine and it's totally not it's totally not that movie and it's funny and it's interesting and uh yeah it kind of makes you go huh well what if there was a time rift in the bathroom in the men's room of this local english pub where these guys go and have a beer I mean, I'll say this, like, you know, this kind of uh, plot device, you see it in a lot of stuff. Obviously, Groundhog Day comes to mind, uh, but it's one that I never get tired of. And I'll bring up a uh, it's it's more of a it's a dark sci fi uh, movie called Time Crimes. Mm. If you've never seen it, definitely check that out as well. 
and it's sort of uh, a, a time travel drama that's very engaging and kind of funny and super dark and uh, came out probably around the same time. I think it was 2008 or 2009 that it came out. Well, what I was going to say is that this movie totally feels like the type of thing that uh, you might see at a film market, something like AFM to, to harken back to our, our close focus. But uh, it's definitely contained. I don't know how much the budget was, but it was definitely a small budget. But despite its limitations, uh, they did all. I mean, it's limitations as far as scope and size and, and everything else. You don't feel like you're missing anything. The movie plays plays to its own merits and it works really well and uh, i highly recommend that if you need a lark something not too heavy and you want to have some fun frequently ask questions about time travel now streaming uh it's it's on different services that if you subscribe to it subscribe to it, it'll be free i uh i will definitely check it out as you know i i love a good time travel yarn so yeah i, th- I our, think you'll like this one too our last episode of 20 seconds to live uh had a had a time travel uh issue that has always been uh, kind of a bug up my ass about time travel anyway okay. so, so ben, um, what's your what's your short end this week well my short end is kind of a, a two-pronged a revolution in post that happened this week uh both black magic da vinci resolve and final cut pro 10 uh dropped new versions final cut pro 10 which i have been open with my dismissal of and hatred of has done mostly under the hood kind of performance-based stuff whereas da vinci resolve has really kind of upped their game and they've been upping it ever since they dropped the software uh our intrepid composer Kay zalatrachi uh, swears by da vinci resolve uh i've actually let know, me i've downloaded let me interject right here too uh something that Blackmagic has not done up until this release is now really hang their the star power of the people who have been using their stuff uh, as part of their marketing and promotion. It can be pretty difficult to deal with studios to get clips and things. But if you go to the official Blackmagic website, you'll actually see clips from Godzilla and you'll see Emma Stone's face and the lighthouse and commercials oh, nice. from BMW and Ford and all these high-end professional stuff in a whiz bang chop 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 type of thing so well you know the important thing to remember is if you use avid or you use final cut pro 10 or you use davinci resolve you use adobe premiere you will get uh professional results out of all of them like they're all professional software packages none of them are terribly expensive uh, no, it's it's not like the old days with this where, stuff. Where, yeah. But I would say, mortgage if your you house were, too. if I were talking to somebody who had never edited before and they were just starting out today, uh, I would say, and they said, where do I start? I would say, get DaVinci Resolve because there is a free tier of DaVinci Resolve that is completely professional, uses the same identical interface, and you can do all of the stuff that you, or I shouldn't say all, but like a lot of the stuff that you can do in the higher end version. And the higher end version is only $300 or free if you buy any other Blackmagic product like any of their cameras. Yeah, and you could buy those cameras from Hot Red Cameras, you know, just, 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 can and just, should. just saying, yeah, you, yeah, yes, <laughs> and you should. Just to drop yeah, exactly. that. Throw that um, in there right there, and, you know, we'll, we'll tell you which ones come with the software. For but, free. like, you know, and again, anyone who's who's listened to me talk about this knows that I'm kind of an Adobe Premiere uh, loyalist at the moment. I'm not, I'm not like, loyal, like, I don't, I, I don't have uh, an Adobe Premiere t-shirt on right now or anything, <laughs> uh, but I prefer you Adobe with the back Premiere, tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I could get into the long story of how I ended up moving from Final Cut, from Media 100 originally to Final Cut Pro to eventually premiere and i've been in premiere now for nine years you know it's been my main my main editing and uh, and taking nothing away from it it's a really great piece of software and it's like you know uh if you can afford around 50 bucks a month i think that's about what the going rate is well yeah and i have a bigger theory that i have kind of talked about which is sort of like four years after these things get released they you start to see if they have a real dent in the marketplace Mm. so 
you know, uh, Final Cut Pro when it came out in the early aughts. Um, it came out, I think, in 2000. About four years later, you started seeing it in professional bays. You know, avid people were kind of turning up their noses at it at first. And then eventually, you know, you'd hear that major TV shows and stuff were being cut in it. And then uh, after Final Cut Pro did be, became the whatever you want to call it that it is now <laughs> in 2011, probably about two or three years later. And my theory is you have students, uh, you know, film students in colleges who are getting student discounts on the software and getting really good at it. And then one day people go, holy crap, we have all these amazing, talented editors, but we should be in, you know, whatever the new thing is. And, uh, and Avid, it took Avid a long time to kind of do that kind of outreach with students. So you end up getting, you know, this influx of people. And I feel like we're probably at the beginning of the influx of DaVinci Resolve. That being said, I don't think Adobe Premiere is going to relinquish as quickly because it really does have, it really is kind of a strong second to, to Avid. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I use Adobe. Uh, I know a lot of people use Adobe. It's, uh, it's got a pretty easy learning curve. I have not, uh, dove deep into DaVinci, but we're building a, a DaVinci PC at the office and we've got a, a theater to put it in. And actually I have to give props to Blackmagic because they have really been listening to customers. One of the big sort of drawbacks of some of the other systems out there is they have, quasi integration with sort of third party hardware tools to make it easier to use. And I'm thinking of things like editors, keyboards, shuttle jog controls, uh, you know, uh, color. Oh man, I have one of those shuttle jog controls sitting on my desk and have I ever used it? I have that. That is you, but other people love and swear by that. And, uh, and black magic has come up with two very cool controllers. One is $995, which includes a full keyboard. The other is $295, which has that control and a bunch of extra buttons and everything else. But you know, they also do color panels. The, resolve micro panel the mini panel and the advanced panel they they all have various degrees and if you are going to be serious about doing one thing as a professional those consoles do speed up your workflow for fairlight they have you know uh they have pots and sliders and all the things that you would expect from like an audio workstation a daw and if you really want to go hog wild they have now these advanced consoles that are you know Oh my God, they're huge! I bet it's like they're, they're designed for high-end uh, audio people. Well, I mean, DaVinci is again is is the name brand in color correction and has been for thirty years. So you know, every control surface you've ever seen with the three wheels controlled DaVinci Resolve. And that's not that's not true. Not everything worked with it. It was very very specific. And if you wanted to use those... no no, I mean, I, but but if you were walking into a color bay, I mean, there have been competitors like Pablo or Color. No, but. But and we're talking about DaVinci was. Yeah. That, well, anyway, I'm just saying like, you know, stuff like Tangent and some of the panels and stuff that were supposed mm-hmm. to also work with like Final Cut Pro or work with Premiere. And work, so some of them do work, but there wasn't one from the manufacturer of the the software that was designed to integrate perfectly and fully. And it always felt like there was some workarounds, had to upload some drivers, you had to configure some things. The The way that Blackmagic has done it, it's like, it's here it is, it's integrated, it's it's ready to roll. You plug it in and, and go to town. So, and I think that they, they deserve props for that because it's an, it's a whole ecosystem. It's not like we put out the software and we have an API and we got to let everyone else figure figure out our shit. They, they, they said, no, we're going to, we're going to come, we're going to, we're going to listen to our customers. They want us to make this as easy as possible. Here's uh, a, a inexpensive hardware external uh, scopes. So like you can get, you know, the ultra scopes from them and you can get all the, the scopes on a, a, it's, it's a, it's very clever. They do a lot of stuff to make it easy 
with other people out there, you can do all the stuff too, but it's, you're in, engaging third parties. Some things feel like workarounds. Well, it's, it's interesting to see like what each of these companies is trying to do to, uh, to, to earn the business, you know, and I feel like Adobe, Adobe, you know, Avid is the most expensive and gives you the least, but it's because they are the industry standout leader and always have been. Adobe gives you a lot for 50 bucks a month when you consider that's like every piece of Agreed. software that they make. Agreed. And the software, a lot of it is is amazing. A lot of it's stuff, like I'm not a web designer, so I don't use any of their web design stuff. I assume it's great. You know, and then uh, Blackmagic is, like you said, like they're creating interesting hardware. I feel like they're, they're trying to sell you more hardware than software. Like, you know, a one, one price uh, DaVinci Resolve is uh, going to hold you over forever, but they can keep sell- selling you hardware, which is sort of the way Apple used to do it with Final Cut Pro. It's like they didn't almost care if you if you got it for a student discount for whatever it was, 200 bucks, because you had to buy a Mac to run it on. And I feel like DaVinci is maybe more, uh, or Blackmagic, I should say, is more of a hardware company. They make the computers. They make uh, cards that go into the computers. That you know, They're making these control surfaces. And they kind of want to keep you in, engaged in that way. Whereas Adobe is just saying, like, continue to subscribe to us and we'll offer you more stuff that's like, here, here's a bunch of fonts. Hey, here's library music. Hey, here's, you know, there's, there's so many, uh, so many things they keep shoving at you. Like, hey, here, here's, here's this thing that you were going somewhere else for and we can offer it f- for you. But it's never, uh, Adobe has never tried to sell me a piece of hardware that I know of. Not saying that they shouldn't, but that wasn't where they were coming from. They were coming from the software side. Blackmagic was coming from the hardware side. Software, they, yeah. they acquired the, you know, DaVinci company. So it's uh, it's interesting that uh, how it all worked out. Uh, all right. Ben, we, we should thank some people. Uh, or actually, I should ask, where can people find you? Before we thank people. Where uh, can- please go find me at benrockonline.com. Uh, you can see some of my work there. You can find all of my social media integrations. Feel free to add me on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever. And uh, I'll uh, if you follow me uh, and tell me that you're from that you're a cinematography podcast fan, I will follow you right back. Uh, indeed. Uh, where can people find you, Ilya? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. I'm there uh, Monday through Friday. But you know, actually, I gotta I'm gonna plug LinkedIn again. I'm I'm kind of amazed how many people from the podcast have reached out recently through LinkedIn. So uh, you can keep doing that. I'm happy to link with you. I'll link with uh, anyone who mentions the podcast and says, "Hey, uh, how's it going?" That. That's that's all. I think this pandemic is going to be the time where we all went. Hey, LinkedIn isn't as as lame as we used to say it was because they used to be like the nickelback of social media, and now it's like I don't know the Dave Matthews Band of social media. <laughs> not especially cool, but not offensive. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Sorry, Nickelback fans. <laughs> Sorry, Dave Matthews fans. <laughs> you, you kind of offended two different groups there with that. Well done. Okay, <laughs> come and get me. Come and get me, band fans. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it turns who out The Rock is a big fan, and he's really offended. And he listens to the show, and now he's going to show up at your at your front door. to. to... The Rock is a big fan, and is he a Dave Matthews guy, or is no, he, he a Nickelback I guy? Think he might be some of both, so he's coming, he's oh, coming to yeah. find you now. So anyway, uh, anyway, let's thank some people. Let's thank, let's thank, you know what? Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi first. Let's thank, let's, let's thank him first. Let's thank him first this time. Maybe he'll listen to this episode because we talked about the DaVinci Resolve and he'll scream at his phone because I got everything wrong. <laughs> he will. He'll scream at it. He'll send you hate mail. He'll explain he'll, to you. He'll immediately <laughs> direct message me on Facebook and tell me what I got wrong. Uh, no, no one here has got a friend like that. I'm sure. So <laughs> he's the best. So uh, let's also thank uh, Ben Katz, our intrepid editor, who we did not do any favors for this episode. Thank you, Ben. And, and let's thank Alana Cody, our resilient producer, who is somehow uh, put up with us uh, long enough to get this episode done. 
love these many years and we will see you next week for part two of wally fister holy crap <laughs> holy crap this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening Thank you.